You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. It is May 19th, 2021, and also a Wednesday, episode 122 of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show, episode 57 of season three. We're quickly approaching the point where half of the episodes of this podcast will have been recorded since the beginning of this year. Of course, I've shortened up the length of episode, but all the same, I've got half of my episodes almost being recorded just since January 1st. And I'm feeling pretty good about that. I'm feeling like that was a goal to record episodes more often, to put content out there that is shorter, more concise, more targeted, more focused, more on topic, less all over the board. And that goal is being accomplished. But I want to take a moment to step back and consider what other goals I should have at this point, or am I losing sight of other goals at this point? There are several things from a strategic and a tactical standpoint that I've had at the fore of my attention, but it's easy when you pursue certain things real focusedly, if that's a word, with great focus, Maybe that's the better way to put it, to be correct. It's easy to lose sight of other things which are also important. If you get tunnel vision on a certain aspect of refinement, it's easy to stop paying attention to other things which also deserve attention and to neglect them. So I don't want to do that, but the way to not do that is every now and then to stop and do an inventory on how this is going. So I recorded a podcast episode yesterday unpacking my reservations regarding the book Lead by Paul David Tripp, a Philadelphia pastor of 40 years. If memory serves, if I understood him correctly in his book. And I've talked a fair amount about his book here recently. So what about that? Well, the reason I bring it up is that Relating to his book, I am critical of a number of high-profile Christian leaders or leaders in the church in America, people with a large microphone, with a big audience, with a large following, and I've been explaining my concern with people who are on the woke side of the fault line, as Vody Bauckham would put it. I am reading things that are written by people I agree with. I'm reading things by people that I disagree with. And as I read things by people I disagree with, I want to not bring more heat than light to the topic. I want to not go beyond what is appropriate, what is in good taste, what ought to be said. And I don't want to be disrespectful, even as I can't respect certain things which are cropping up. I can't affirm those things, and I certainly don't want to flatter anybody who subscribes to those ideas. 
I still want to be appropriate in the way that I am handling the truth. And the truth is a mighty large subject. That's why this podcast is about everything in a word, because I want to be holistic in the way that I metabolize information. I want to read a lot. I want to read very widely and on a diverse range of topics. I want to think deeply about those topics. And I want to be always asking the question, particularly when it comes to people who have harebrained notions, is this true? Are there certain things in the mix here that are true and also some things that are not true? Is there a temptation here to falsehood? Is there a temptation here to corrupting the truth? And by extension, corrupting our practice, corrupting the way that I live my life, the way that I love my family, the way that I do my work and approach my vocation, the way that I relate to the people around me, the way that I think of myself, the way that I think of the world, the way that I think of threats and opportunities, also strengths and weaknesses. Is there an opportunity to get a better idea, a clearer picture of those things? By reading people I disagree with, absolutely. Is there also a hazard in reading people I disagree with that sometimes I might have a less clear picture of what is true? Is there a hazard in reading people I agree with? Is there a hazard day in and day out when it comes to metabolizing information? Absolutely. There absolutely is. Jesus at one point has this conversation with the Pharisees in which they challenge him on his disciples' conduct. It's not lawful to do any work on the Sabbath, but here they are picking grain as they walk through a field and they're eating it. They're eating the grain as they walk through a field, casually strolling from one place to another, to and fro, and that is law-breaking. Well, that's actually not the problem here. The problem is that the Pharisees are unscrupulous pretenders. They are mountebanks, which for those who are not familiar, a mountebank is an unscrupulous pretender. That's just another way to put it. But I don't want to be pretentious. And so we'll just say they are frauds. They are pretending at a depth of virtue, which they do not personally try to adhere to, but they want to hold others accountable to. And in so doing, they think they get an advantage. They win points with the crowd, with the mob. They get rid of rivals. They get rid of people that are competing with them for attention. They're getting ahead. So they think they've got Jesus and his disciples, whom they hate and whom they see as a threat to their power, to their status quo, to their following, to their shtick. They think they have them by playing gotcha over Sabbath and work on the Sabbath in particular. And so Jesus replies very coolly, very calmly, maybe, or very acidically, very sarcastically, very irritably. We don't know. All we know is that he replies and puts them in their place, whether sweetly with a smile or with a frown and a rolling of the eyes. Me personally, I would roll my eyes before I replied 
to a charge like this because sometimes I get charges like this in my household between my children. Dad, he's touching me. Dad, he's not doing this, right? Okay, that was not in good faith. You are just trying to get an advantage over your brother and you're being more obnoxious than he is in the way that you're telling about his supposed misdeed. His misdeed does not rise to the level of your misdeed because you're not bringing this charge in good faith. Jesus replies one way or the other. Whatever tone we can read out of the words on the page, which have been passed down to us over the generations which God has preserved, which are infallible, inerrant, Jesus replies that it is not what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. It is what enters a man. Oh, wait a second. No, no, no. That's what the Pharisees think. Jesus says it is not what enters a man that makes him unclean. It is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. And what he means more specifically is our language. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, meaning they are bringing these frivolous charges against his disciples because that's what their heart is filled with, is malice, ambition, deceit, hypocrisy. The things that they're saying are very hypocritical, and that is because in their hearts they are hypocrites. And the fact that they allow these things to come out, and they say these things, and they have no shame, they have no embarrassment, no apparent regret for their own hypocrisy is an indication that there's something very much off in their relationship with God, first and foremost, and their relationship to those around them, secondarily and downstream. So also, my attitude towards John Piper, Tim Keller, Paul David Tripp, David Platt, any of these Christians who have, to one degree or another, gone woke my attitude towards them might not be entirely correct. It might not be entirely respectful. So I said something last week on one of the episodes I published about John Piper being a knucklehead about the issue of abortion and how can we vote. Can we vote Democrat if we want to have less abortions, if we want to bring an end to abortion, the Bible tells me that abortion is murder, but it doesn't tell me how I need to vote to bring an end to abortion, he says, right before the 2020 election. Now, I can disagree with that, and I think all decent people should disagree with that. His op-ed was not in good taste. It was not in good faith. It was not in accordance with good principles. But even my saying that to some people is a stumbling block. It's a controversial, offensive, thorny position to take. It's a thorny thing to say. So the question then becomes, why do I say that, for one? And also, is it right to say that sort of a thing for another thing? And also, how do I say that? Is there certain baggage, a certain attitude that comes with that kind of a statement, certain baggage concerning attitudes which may or may not be a different kind of 
fallacy, a different kind of bad attitude, a different kind of bad action. You know, last night I was watching the third and final movie in Peter Jackson's The Hobbit trilogy, extended edition. By the way, before I tell you all about that, I did not know that the extended edition of The Hobbit, Battle of the Five Armies, is rated R. I did not know that. I now know that. It is a fairly violent movie. I mean, it's a battle, right? But it's a fairly violent movie. There's a bit more gore and explicit violence than I realized or that I remembered there being in the theatrical version. I think it was the theatrical version that I picked up when the movie very first came out on DVD or when I saw it in theaters, whichever. But I was watching it with my kids last night, the kids that wanted to watch it. Daniel did not want to watch it, and that's fine. Enoch was in and out a little bit. John sometimes couldn't care less. But the rest of them I watched it with, and I'm like, wow, okay. And I look over at my boys, my boys are like, whoa, that was really over the top, wasn't it? Like, I just got exploded. And his viscera and bones and everything just went everywhere. Those guys just got made into mincemeat by the war wagon, the dwarven war wagon. I don't remember that one. But to be fair, that is what it is, right? I mean, when it comes to a accurate, realistic portrayal of a battle where you have swords and shields and maces and axes and war machines designed to take life, take the lives of enemies, of an enemy army. It is not a neat and tidy academic pursuit. It is not clean. It is not sanitized. It's about as gritty and raw and ugly and stomach-turning as anything can be. War is hell, to put it succinctly and completely unoriginally. So we watched the Battle of the Five Armies last night, and for whatever reason, I had to pause the movie about 45 minutes in. Something happened. One of my boys was going to go and get some popcorn popped or something like that. So I pause at his request, and while the movie is paused, all of a sudden, that is when one of my sons, one of my older boys, wanted to tell me about some things that they just had remembered on the fly that had concerned them about one of my other boys, and still yet another boy from the neighborhood. An older boy from the neighborhood has been hanging out with my boys, and sometimes his language is not what it should be. Sometimes he says things that my kids are not allowed to say in this house for good reason. More importantly than the words is the attitude. And at one point, this neighborhood boy said that he hates his life right now and his life sucks and his life is hell right now. And there's reasons for that that I don't fully comprehend, but I have some notion of. His parents are divorced. His dad has had health issues. He's bouncing back and forth between his mother's house and his father's house. His parents have different parenting philosophies, different standards, different sets of things that they are trying to work 
on in his life. And he's a teenage boy, and he's frustrated. And so he hates his life right now in melodramatic fashion. Teenagers, what do you expect? But he's articulating this attitude in front of my younger, older boys who hang out with him. And so then the question is, what do we do with that? I'm not hearing about it from my younger, older boy. I'm hearing about it from one of his older brothers who was present and who witnessed and observed and overheard this back and forth and was concerned by it and wasn't sure how to respond in the moment. And so he didn't. He wasn't sure how to respond, and so he didn't respond. It was a bad attitude. It was not helpful. It was not appropriate. It was melodramatic. And this particular son of mine who hangs out with this boy the most is somewhat more impressionable, somewhat more likely to be sensitive to the feelings of others and also more susceptible to falling under the spell of those that he is hanging out with. He's more likely to follow uncritically the pattern that is laid out in front of him. And sometimes that's good when a good pattern is laid out in front of him. Sometimes that's not so good when a bad pattern, a bad attitude is laid out in front of him. And so what you want to do is you want to be aware of what patterns, what attitudes, what mindsets are being put in front of a boy like that. And if you're not aware, how are you supposed to guide and parent him as a father? That's the question that I asked my sons while we had the movie paused, 45 minutes in, and I get a little bit blindsided by this. I wasn't expecting to have this kind of a parenting moment and discussion in the middle of the movie. And I will confess there was a bit of irritation on my part and that that was not for the best. That was not good. Not right now, guys. We're busy. We're watching The Hobbit, don't you know? We've got more important things to do than talk about that, talk about some neighborhood kid telling you he hates his life right now, saying he's going to flip the bird to some guy that almost ran them over as he was turning into a driveway earlier, who said Jesus Christ in a flippant way when we don't talk that way in this house. We don't say Jesus Christ. We don't say God. We don't refer to God and things that are holy and God is holy in a flippant way, in a disrespectful way in this house. We don't use that kind of language casually just to convey our own frustration and irritation. But right now we're watching The Hobbit, guys. I've got better things to do. Well, that's not one of my prouder moments, I'll tell you. My impatience at wanting to get back to the movie was not their fault. That was a failing in me. But we talked about it, and I said, guys, your mom and I need to know these things ASAP when they happen. If we don't know about these things, how are we supposed to parent you? How are we supposed to guide you through them? How are we supposed to give you parental guidance? That's why we're here, by the way, is to give you parental guidance. But we can't give you parental guidance if we're in the dark. Is that clear? Yep. Yeah. So here I am. I'm watching this movie with my kids. And I resume the movie after a minute, making sure that we're clear on that. We're going to have to have a follow-up discussion. I talked with Lauren when she got back from getting together with Liz Messer from church. They had some sweet tea and sweet conversation, it sounds like. But I made a mental note that I'm not good with 
the internal reaction that I had there, that internal frustration, that internal impatience. I'm not good with that. I shouldn't be good with that. I should be discontented with that attitude in me. And how am I going to help guide my kids away from having a bad attitude, away from being disrespectful? How am I going to do that when I myself am just modeling a different kind of bad attitude, a different kind of disrespectful impatience and immaturity? Well, the short answer is I'm going to have to work on that. If I want to weigh in and not just substitute one bad attitude for another, I'm going to have to work on that. And so you continue on. I'm watching this movie with my kids and we're getting to the very tail end and Lauren gets home and it's this really dramatic moment. I don't want to give away anything if you haven't seen the movies or read the book, but it's this very dramatic culmination at the very, very end of the last movie in this trilogy of The Hobbit. And a prominent character is dying, and it's very emotional, and there's this dialogue back and forth, and it's an important moment. Nearly 10 hours of movie watching has led up to this, and one of my sons cracks a joke, and another one wants to talk over the scene and try to be funny. And my daughter is also asking questions. But she's asking questions in part because her brothers are making jokes and distracting and talking over the scene to where you can't hear the dialogue. And once again, once more, I feel this welling up of frustration. And I was more abrasive and I was more sharp in my tone than I can be proud of, than is appropriate. Was there some corrective that was appropriate there? Absolutely. Was that a teachable moment? Absolutely. Was that an opportunity for my kids to learn to be more understanding, more considerate? Yes. Yes, it was. Did I handle that moment well? No. Not in a way that I can be proud of. Not in a way that I can go bragging about on my podcast or in my conversation with friends and family. Not in a way that I feel like my kids are going to come back to me years from now and say, Dad, that was really a turning point in my life for the good. On the contrary, if that was a bad attitude on my part and I was combating a bad attitude with another bad attitude, then they're going to have even more muddy waters to try and sift through as they're pursuing a better way of relating. So then the movie ends. It's late. It's time for everybody to go to bed. And I have this conversation with my wife and I'm telling her, I said, you know, here's an answer to her question. Here's how my evening went. She wanted to know, how was your evening? And I'm feeling frustrated. Mm, not so great, actually. This and this and this and this. And this popped up out of the blue and this blindsided me and I didn't handle it well. And I'm not thrilled with the outcome. I probably did more harm than good. I brought more heat than light to those parenting opportunities, at least a couple of them. And there's still something there that we need to address. But meanwhile, I'm just sitting there and it's late, so I'm tired. And it was a bit of a long day for all of us. 
and I won't go into all of why it was a long day, but it was a bit of a long day. And so I'm weighing and measuring the way that I've responded to this. And I'm too tired really to be doing that competently. But it all comes right back to what I started this episode talking about, which is how I relate to these woke pastors. How should we relate to these woke pastors? You know, we've recently gone through the book of Jude as a church. Paul Pavlik did a fine job of preaching through that one chapter New Testament book written by the half-brother of Jesus, Jude. And one of the things that Jude decries is these false teachers who need to be confronted, by the way, they need to be confronted, but he describes them. He says that they claim authority from their dreams, and he describes them as rain clouds, storm clouds that never release any rain. He says that they are not respectful of the things that they speak on. He does a compare and contrast with the Archangel Michael and points out that when Michael and Satan were contending over the body of Moses, that even Michael, being an archangel, said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, even Michael, with as much authority and standing and being on the right side as he was, knew that it was improper for him personally to be rebuking Satan. I don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that John Piper is Satan. Although I would note as a small aside, it's always fascinated me that Jesus rebukes Peter at one point by saying, get behind me, Satan, when Peter thinks he's going to instruct Jesus on what he is and is not going to do, going to Jerusalem, being arrested, being put on trial, being crucified. Peter is going to tell Jesus that that is not appropriate. And Jesus is going to tell Peter that he's out of line. Get behind me, Satan. Ouch. Ooh, that one's going to leave a mark. Now, I'm not Jesus, but it is interesting that Jesus can say that to a disciple that he obviously loves. And it isn't a destructive rebuke. It's a corrective rebuke to get his attention, to put everybody on notice. The things that you are saying are not good. The attitude that you're conveying is not good. You are putting yourself above the Son of God, and you're forgetting your place, young man. In the case of John Piper, Tim Keller, Paul David Tripp, David Platt, others, what is it that makes them above reproach? Is their title? Is their position? Is their age? You know, in 10 years, 20 years, let's suppose I am the age of whoever the most popular flavor of the month pastor is, the most highly published. Let's suppose it's Rob Bell. If I say that Rob Bell is being a knucklehead, is that disrespectful? It might be. I think maybe the test, and I've been mulling this over, I think maybe the test is if this person were sitting in front of me right now across the table from me and I were having this conversation with them, would it be appropriate for me to say this thing to them? 
would I, in good conscience, say this thing to them? That was something I was confronted with by a former friend from high school who went full-on woke, who bought in hard and heavy to the Black Lives Matter movement five years ago. He confronted me on this one time when we were having a debate on Facebook, back when I was still on Facebook. And the question he asked was, would you relate to somebody this way, the way that you do online, if you were in person talking to them? Well, no, no, I wouldn't. But no small part of that is because if I were in person, just talking face to face with them privately, just the two of us, that's a different scenario than when you have an audience. And what I don't mean is when you have an audience, now it's time to get all WWE, start doing a a flying elbow drop on people that otherwise you would shake hands with. That's not what I mean. I don't mean that you play to the crowd and you start putting a little extra hot sauce on things just to get people worked up, make it entertaining. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that when an old friend of mine embraces Black Lives Matter and he's got a platform, he's been on the national news, he's got everybody from our hometown cheering him on and listening and respecting what he has to say, and then he starts repeating Black Lives Matter, critical race theory, systemic racism, talking points loudly and insulting everybody around him particularly me, since I was confronting him about it, when questions are asked, when challenges are made, when counterpoints are offered, when there's a rebuke, he gets highly disrespectful and accuses me of being a racist, being ignorant, being unloving. When all that happens in front of hundreds of people that are scrolling by and they're reading these things and they're weighing in and they're chiming in and they're trying to decide which is correct. Is Nathan right or is Garrett right? I'm going to respond in that situation a bit differently because what's on the line is not just my friend Nathan. It's also all of these other people who are in the audience who may or may not start contributing to Black Lives Matter funds, who may or may not start raising a black power fist, who may or may not start joining in with the rage against people who reject critical race theory as a Marxist ploy. Those people may or may not be swayed by this false teaching, by this falsehood, by this injustice that is being hoisted upon all of us. And so I'm going to rebuke my former friend, Nathan Smith, much more strongly in front of everybody because he's presuming to instruct all of these people in what is and is not justice. And he's got it twisted and he's repeating things that are the opposite of justice. He's being a useful idiot. And I don't say useful idiot to be insulting. And I want to be careful when I remember that Jesus says that you've heard that it was said, thou shalt not commit murder. But I say to you, anybody who hates his brother has committed murder in his heart already. And anybody who says to his brother, Raka, or you fool, will be in danger of the hellfire. I do believe the word could also be translated as idiot. But I'm not using idiot 
because I hate him. I'm using idiot as a reference to what Vladimir Ilyevich Lenin had for a term for people in the West that are useful to communism. But then there's a big difference, somebody will point out, with some good reasons, with validity. There's a big difference between rebuking my high school friend, who's the same age as I am, Nathan Smith, who's come out swinging, casting aspersions on me, mocking, ridiculing, insulting me in front of everybody. There's a wide difference between my rebuking him in front of everybody, on the one hand, and my saying that John Piper, a pastor, a long-serving pastor, whether in error now on some things and perpetrating, perpetuating errors in the church, when I say that he is acting like a knucklehead, there's a big difference. There really is. It's interesting to me. There's a passage that Paul Pavlik, one of the pastors here at Some of You, brought up in recent months, wherein the Apostle Paul is on trial. And at one point, he is struck on the mouth as he talks back. And the high priest wants him to be struck on the mouth as a way of letting him know, you don't talk that way. You don't talk back, young man. And Paul has something to say about it. And he's pretty salty in his response. It was wrong for him to be struck on the mouth. The whole reason he's on trial is a sham and an injustice and ungodly. And yet, when he's told, you don't talk to the high priest this way, whether or not that high priest is duly elected, whether he won his position by fraud using Dominion voting machines, it's a side issue to the fact that he has a responsibility before God to relate to this authority figure, whether legitimate or illegitimate, in an honorable way. Well, if that's true of Paul in that context, that should be true of us in the context of dealing with these fault lines within the church. And I think it does behoove us to do an inventory on the way that we're relating to one another. Are we muddying the waters still further as we're confronting bad attitudes, falsehoods, Are we confronting bad attitudes with bad attitudes? Are we confronting falsehoods with other falsehoods? We're just going to fall off the tightrope on the other end. If so, we should pause, take a step back, and remove the plank from our own eye before we go trying to help our brother to remove the speck from his. But here's an honest question, and I'm going to leave you with this. When Jesus and John the Baptist and others can use the kind of language that they do at various points in confronting false teaching, how much of that is just for us to observe and abstain from? How much of that is normative? How much of that is maybe even prescriptive? Jesus says at one point, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves, therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. He also says in that same segment, do not cast your pearls before swine and do not give the dogs what is holy. If you're going to adhere to that, you have to determine at a certain point who the dogs are and who the swine are. At another place, Jesus rebukes the teachers of the law, 
scribes, Pharisees, several points he calls them out specifically for the crowd. We're talking about established authorities who stand up and they say, this is who I am. I am the guy. I am the person that teaches you about God's law. And Jesus says at one point, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never inherit the kingdom of heaven. He mocks them. He says that they tithe out of their spice racks, but they neglect the weightier matters of the law. That's that, that's kind of funny, but also not entirely respectful if you're talking about somebody who's not recognized as having authority, except for the fact that he's speaking and teaching as one with authority to people who at least affirm one another's authority. At what point does this woke brand of Christianity in the mainstream that gets its books published, that gets amplified on Sirius XM, on Caleb, in the Christian bookstores, in the big denominations, the mainline denominations, in the seminaries, in the Christian colleges. At what point does that woke brand of Christianity become, for all intents and purposes, our version of the teachers of the law, the scribes, the Pharisees? And if at a certain point it does become that or has become that, is it fair game for us to speak to and speak about and refer to the people who are steering the ship in that direction towards woke Christianity, towards a type of Judaizer mentality, but for leftism? Does it become appropriate for us to refer to those people in the same kinds of terms that Jesus does, in the same kinds of terms that the Apostle Paul does. I think of, again, as I mentioned yesterday in my podcast episode on Paul David Tripp's book, I think of the story that the Apostle Paul relates in Galatians. He talks about confronting Peter to his face at the church in Antioch because Peter, who is a legitimate authority within the church, who has a lot of clout, who has a lot of bona fides. You think somebody's got clout because they went to seminary and because they studied under so-and-so and they have this degree and they're an ordained minister. Peter had more clout and he gets rebuked publicly to his face in fairly strong terms. He gets told he is undermining the gospel. Ooh, ouch. Wow. That's going to leave a mark. Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan. Paul rebukes him in front of the Gentile believers for undermining the gospel because he's currying favor with the Judaizers. But take a step back from that. Why was Peter intimidated by the Judaizers? Not for no reason, not without cause. He was intimidated because they were pushy, assertive people. They were people who held themselves up as authoritative on these subjects. They were there to try and convince the Gentile believers that they needed to be circumcised in order to really be Christians. You see echoes of this, by the way, sometimes in very conservative Messianic Jewish communities of faith. Gospel communities, maybe. Maybe sometimes false gospel communities. But I just want to leave you with Galatians 5.12. And I'm not trying to be snarky. I really am not. I, it's a genuine question. What do we do with passages like Galatians 5.12? Where the Apostle Paul, mocking the Judaizers for saying that Gentile believers need 
to be circumcised in order to be saved, says that he wishes they would go the whole way. If circumcision makes you holy, he wishes they would just go the whole way and emasculate themselves. And what he means there is castrate themselves. Whoa, that's not appropriate, right? But then again, it has to be. In some form or fashion, that sentiment has to be appropriate. That seems really sarcastic. It seems really biting. It seems rather crude, actually. In fact, I mean, you can't help but have a little bit of crudity when you're talking about circumcision, just by virtue of the subject matter. But still, geez, Paul, wow. Talk about about a flying elbow drop. You just dunked on the Judaizers. And I run a risk here. I realize that. I run a risk by relishing that. And yet I have the question. I, I do have the question. And it's similar to the question watching The Hobbit Battle of the Five Armies, the extended edition, rated R. This war wagon filled with dwarves is running through the ranks of orcs. And as it does so, it's got these scythes. And this is a thing from history, scythed chariots. You see it in the version of Ben-Hur. Actually, probably every version of Ben-Hur. It's probably in the books. I can't testify that. I'm just presuming. But scythed chariots that have blades on the spokes, on the hub of these wheels. And as the wheel turns, as the horses pull the cart, the blades turn, and if you are next to that wheel as it passes by, you're going to get blended. You're going to get minced. And so these dwarves in the Battle of Five Armies have these war wagons with scythed wheels, kind of a war chariot, scythed chariot. And as they run through the ranks of orcs, they mince up some orcs. Those orcs were standing whole one moment. And now the next moment as the chariot passes through, the war wagon passes through, they're in little pieces and bits all over the place. Ooh, wow, is that appropriate? Well, it's effective. It's maybe not ideal. It's maybe not pretty, but it is effective. I don't think that we should relish things like that and be drawn to them for the fun of it. I think there's something warped and twisted. I think that's really the distinction and the difference between contending for the faith, like Jude talks about in his very brief, succinct New Testament epistle, and on the other hand, being contentious, which we are warned against. In fact, we're warned not only against being contentious ourselves, we're warned to have nothing to do with people who are contentious. But how do you walk that fine line sometimes in the midst of being sober and vigilant, sober and watchful, sober-minded, because your adversary, the devil, goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That's some war language there. When Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, the scribes, when he rebukes them publicly and he calls them whitewashed tombs and a brood of vipers, and he says that they're of their father, the devil, That's fighting words. Those are fighting words, and particularly public fighting words. We can't just say, well, that was Jesus, and so he was able to say that. But we also have to be careful 
not being Jesus and having a sinful nature that we don't fall off the other side of it to where we become contentious, to where we become a brawler. You know, talking about leadership, Paul David Tripp's book, talking about who should and should not be a leader in Christ's church. That is one of the qualifications that Paul lays out to both Timothy and to Titus, is that he should be not a brawler. I'll tell you more about one person that I have had some dealings with who comes to mind, who typifies that contentious brawler mentality and yet has a large following. I'll tell you about him on another episode. But suffice to say for now, I'm grappling with this. I think it's good for us to grapple with this. I think it's needful for us to grapple with this in all respects. Where First Peter 3 says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. When he says that, we do well to take heed. We do well to think of that in terms of the being sober-minded and watchful, being sober and vigilant, as it says in another translation, for your adversary the devil goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. We do well to consider that being blameless and not going beyond what is in good taste or appropriate as we confront false teaching or error in the church, that we're not contentious. We do well to think of that charge, that admonition, that corrective in the text as part of how we be sober-minded and watchful and vigilant. But I got to leave it there. I need to go to work. My day job, this podcasting thing, is not my day job. I'd love it if it was someday, but God willing, we live and do this or that. Thank you. If you listen through all of my back and forth, meandering, wandering about, trying to explore these things, trying to wrestle with them, trying to grapple with them, trying to meditate on them, thank you for bearing with me. And uh, I'd love to know what you think. I'd love to hear your perspective on this, if you've got something helpful to add to help me in grappling with this, I would appreciate it. And I'll be sure to, uh, I'll be sure to share, sure to share, sure, sure, sure. I'll be happy to relay that thing that you share with me to the wider audience so that they can benefit from it as well. But in any event, for now, thank you for listening. And until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.